This episode of Stuff You Should Know is sponsored by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all possible with the Squarespace website. Go to squarespace.com and set your website apart. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Jerry's over there. And that was Lin-Manuel Miranda in the original Broadway show cast. Cats. Of Hamilton. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Great song. Do you listen to that stuff? Um, like Broadway show sometimes. Uh, recordings and stuff? I don't necessarily seek it out or whatever, but I'm not like, turn it off. You know? Have you listened to Hamilton? I have not heard a second of Hamilton, even still, because that song was put in in post-production. I've still never heard a second of Hamilton. Uh, I've seen like video on sure. on mute, <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. Well, it is no wonder that show has become a run uh, runaway hit because of two things. One, the music is great, yeah, and the book and is great, and it looks great. Uh, I've not seen it yet because I'm not wealthy. Man, don't you have to be? Yeah, if you want to get a ticket to a Hamilton that's sold out, mm-hmm. yeah, you got to pay thousands of dollars. Can't do it. Um, and the second reason is because Alexander Hamilton is finally getting his due yeah. as perhaps the most influential American in history. Those are big words, buddy. Uh, show me someone else. Uh, not saying there haven't been influential Americans. I would, he, I would, I think tops them all. Yeah, you know, I, I can't disagree. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, most controversial founding father for sure. Youngest founding father by far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an outsider. Wasn't even born in the United States. No. He Wasn't was, even born in England. He was an immigrant, uh, bastard child, mm-hmm. which, um, that was the legal to, term back then. By yeah, the way. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, had a lot Chuck's to do with his like um, how he turned out in life. Oh yeah, he, he had, had a chip on his shoulder. He had a chi- well, uh, yeah. You can put it that way. I would put it like he had extra drive that a lot of those like hoity-toity blue blood yeah. aristocrats founding fathers didn't have because they didn't need it. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of opportunity. This guy. Picked himself up from the bootstraps. Yeah. Like he, the first American Horatio Alger, I think. Yeah. He thought he was smarter than everyone else? He, yes, I get that impression, oh, but yeah. the Very thing impressive. is, he was right most of the time. Well, yeah, and if someone came out and disagreed with him, he was not, he wasn't a good politician. He He, that's, no. he was not skilled at being deferential or... Right. Uh, didn't know how to bow. Certainly didn't know how to curtsy. No, like he would come out and say, no, you're completely wrong you're, for these yeah. 14 reasons. Right, and you're ugly. That <laughs> I'll explain at length. Yeah, um, he'd like poke them in the belly, be pull on their jowls a little bit. Yeah, tear their wig off. Um, 
Yeah, I saw there's this really great American Experience episode from 1997. I saw it. Okay. PBS? Yeah. Great. Did you notice there were like some recognizable actors in there? Oh, yeah. Like one guy was like, I was like, I recognize that guy from Frasier and The Wire. And Yeah, yeah. There were a few dudes uh, yeah. that were, uh, played the, re- recreated the roles of, uh, Right, not but Hamilton not himself, like, though. oh, great actor, do you mind deigning to be in this American experience? It was like, hey, hungry actor, your agent called us and we have a role yeah. for you. Because this is like back in the 90s. Oh, was it 90s? Yeah, 97. I looked it up. Really good episode, though. It, yeah, and if you look at the website for it, you can tell it's from 1997 for sure. <laughs> but it was great. And in it, one of the historians put it pretty plainly. He was an excellent statesman, maybe one of the best that the United States has ever had. Yeah. Uh, terrible politician. Terrible. One of the parts of being a politician is um, to have finesse. Again, one of the historians called it finesse. Yeah, he had no finesse. He didn't learn it. No one taught him that. No. He was orphaned at age, uh, what, 11? No, 13? Possibly 15? Because uh, there's some dispute over really when he was born and if he lied about his age. Well, yeah. I mean, let's just go back to the to the islands of the Caribbean. Back to, back to Nevis. Uh, in 1757 or... 1755? Is yeah. that the uh, the two dates, possibly? Yeah, if you look at the official records in Nevis, which I did before this episode, sure. I went down there, and uh, it's, it has him listed as having been born January 11th, 1755. He always said January 11th, 1757. Yeah. And there's actually good reason why he would have fudged his name. We'll talk about that in a minute. Ooh, tantalizing. We'll talk about that in 48 <laughs> seconds. So uh, his father was a Scottish uh, merchant, and his mother, her name was Rachel Fawcett. She was a English-French planter's daughter. Uh, he, dad moved the family to St. Croix and then left his family. Uh, mom died uh, in 1768. And um, it's interesting. I was watching this great documentary on Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Same thing? By Peter Bogdanovich. And mm-hmm. they... These music historians make a point that there's something about a father who rejects you or a mother who dies uh, when you're young. And they say, in the case of Tom Petty, he had both. But they listed like a list of rock stars, like from Bono to Tom Petty, I can't remember, Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. were either rejected by their dads or mothers died young or both. And they said they have something to prove. And I was like, dude, that's Alexander Hamilton to a T. Sure. He spent his whole life... With something to prove. Lynn Manuel Miranda just went, mm-hmm. Yeah. He's way ahead of us on this. But apparently we're the only podcast he does not listen to, so. <laughs> yeah. Or he politely ignored that come on. Yeah, that's all right. So um, let's talk about, though, his his early life, his early situation. Yeah, he he's finds, an orphan. He finds himself an orphan. His father abandoned him, and he never saw his father for the rest of his life. And I was like, boo, hiss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw it elsewhere and I can't, I couldn't f- find it again, but that, that it was explained that his mother had been married before and right. even though she was divorced, she was not capable legally of being married again. So her husband or, um, Alexander's father left her in the family to prevent her from being, um, accused of being a bigamist and possibly going to, to jail. For I it. saw that too. So maybe that was it, but I only saw that in one place. Yeah. Um, most other people just say the father left and Alexander never saw him again. And as, as a result, he was not able to inherit, uh, any estate 
Yeah, his mother's there estate. There wasn't much of. No, but it would have been pretty helpful to sure. have anything, especially when you're 13 slash 15. Yeah. Uh, and apparently had a, a, a kind uncle who tried to help him out and, and secure the estate, but no, it didn't happen. It actually went to his mother's first husband. Yeah, and he moved in with a, a cousin who then committed suicide. And so he said he hasn't had good experiences with being taken care of. Right. Uh, left to his own devices, he got a job. Uh, working for Beekman and Kruger Mercantile. And this dude, at 14, was running a major company. Not just a major company, a major company on what, until the last couple of decades, had been the largest income-producing colony yeah. in in um, the English Empire. Yeah. Like, it, it made more money from tobacco and then sugar than the other 13 colonies combined. And it was just this little tiny speck of an island. And this kid is running the major company on this major island. So it was it was even bigger than it seems at first blush. Yeah, he was a child prodigy. He wrote uh, newspaper articles at 14. Mm-hmm. He wrote poetry, published poetry. And uh, it was clear to everyone at the company, they were like, this kid he's, is... He's going places. He's going places. So let's start a fund to get him out of here. <laughs> and get him to New York City. Yeah. Because uh, in New York, you can be a new man. Yeah, yes, on Broadway. That's from Hamilton. Oh, okay. I'm going to drop those in. You're not going to know. Nope. <laughs> I'll, I'll struggle to, to make sense of them, though, so keep it up. Uh, so they did so. They ra- uh, raised some money, and um, he went to King's College, which later became Columbia University. Yeah, and for those of us who saw our UK tour, they remember that Alexander Hamilton shows up at Columbia University to plead with the rioting crowd, remember? Yeah, apparently he did that a couple of times. Yeah, I noticed that too in that documentary. Yeah. I was like, he, he spent a lot of time arguing with, like, crowds with, yeah, torches <laughs> and pitchforks on the steps of Columbia University. All right, so he goes to, uh, King's College, he's doing his studying there. Uh, he really, uh, makes a name for himself in writing, uh, political pamphlets, which was kind of the thing to do in of that day. <laughs> there weren't magazines. There well, wasn't Tiger Beat. No. So like if you wanted to if you had a lot to say, you he didn't have Squarespace. Right. So he would uh That was a free one. He, yeah, you like that? Yeah. So he would write uh he would write political pamphlets and they became very well known. Yeah, he um was railing against the British uh monarchy. Yes. And was very much in favor of the loose confederation that the colonies had had um created amongst themselves and their um their joint suffering at the hands of the british colonies which were like or the british uh, crown which was actively trying to punish them yeah um and keep them in line through like taxation no representation sure. um all the asians that you wouldn't like right <laughs> that's right and um alexander hamilton definitely saw this as a a potential for um revolution to occur and he actually wrote in his journal as a younger man back when he's like 12 13 14 that he wished there a war would happen so that he could prove himself yeah it would be a great opportunity to prove himself and he probably saw that opportunity in this unrest that was going on that was being aroused in the colonies and he was fanning the flames of it yeah and he also uh and this is just sort of a side note he he was the most consistent abolitionist oh yeah of all the founding fathers throughout his entire life yeah uh and for very 
Well, for two reasons. One, he thought it was wrong. Yeah. Uh, but very practically, he thought, you know, some of these people might be able to do great things for this country, mm-hmm. and they're not allowed to. And he was like, that just doesn't make sense yeah. to not let people live up to their potential but to make America better. Yeah. But I, it, 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 at least equally as important, he personally found it abhorrent and yeah. despicable. Like, he was against slavery. From the time he was a kid. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. Well, he saw it firsthand, too, when his family moved to St. Croix. Oh, yeah. Um, they, uh, the plantations there. Yeah, he, he was, he was, he encountered it and it had a, a real impact on him. All right. So, 1776, uh, the revolution is underway. Uh, he joins, uh, as a captain in the Continental Army. And I was amazed at this little factoid from the, uh, PBS thing. His artillery unit that he founded is still around today. It's the only, surviving army unit from the Revolutionary War. Wow, that's pretty neat. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, he founded a lot of stuff that's still around today. Yeah. A lot. Well, in our customs episode, we touch on that a little bit. And our lighthouses episode, he popped up in that too. Yeah, he's all over the place. No wonder. He's got his fingers in a lot of pots. (laughs) So uh, he fought uh, like a champ in the Revolutionary War and impressed um, George Washington, who was a pretty important guy at the time. Yeah. And he said, you know what? I like the cut of your jib, kid. Uh, why don't you join me? And he surrounded himself with these young men who, as his team and his family, he called them, that he thought were, you know, bright guys in, in the future of this country. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, you will be my aide uh, de camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll be my assistant. And I got a lot of good dudes around me. They're great military minds, but you're the only one that can write like, like you can write. Yeah, like a mug. Like you can write. He did. He said that. Yeah. You can write like a mug. Yeah. <laughs> Is that in the Broadway show? It should be. I honestly don't know. Could be. It sounds like that could definitely be in a Hamilton rap. <laughs> so. Um, he said, what's your name, man? And he said, Alexander Hamilton. Okay. That's from the show, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> How about this? Indicate it's from the show by oh. making jazz hands. <laughs> okay. You know what? That, that's, that's the last of them. Okay. So, uh, well, if you want to keep it up, that's fine, but I'll say everyone who hasn't seen the show, Chuck's making jazz hands. Yeah, all right. And then Jerry will ring a bell post-production. <laughs> okay? All right, so he's Washington's uh, assistant. Yeah, and he actually, um, one of the, again, the historians on that American experience said, if you look at Washington's um, writing at the time, his correspondence, um, his uh, diaries, I guess probably not his diary. I don't think he had him write his diaries. Well, his speeches and things. Right. Um, the best stuff is just obviously written by Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. Like indisputably so, right? Sure. But it made Washington look really good, and Washington was eternally grateful. And he he also had a um, uh, definite soft spot for Alexander Hamilton personally. Yeah. And, and will for the rest of his life. For sure. Stands by him through thick and thin. Yeah, and... Um our own article does a good job of pointing out that he wasn't just some kid that was like, yes, sir, anything you say. Like, from the very beginning, he's like, you know what? This army is messed up. It's disorganized. Yeah. We need funding. Uh, and, like, there's a this is a big mess. Right. They keep killing people. Yeah, and, wa- <laughs> and Washington was like, I like hearing this, you know? Right. He didn't, he didn't want a yes man around. Yeah. Well, maybe a couple. He needs a couple lick spittles to keep his boots clean. Lick spittle? It's a. I never heard that. Mr. Burns used it once. Oh, really? Yeah. I love that. Um, so Washington, uh, I think actually ha- Hamilton was a victim of his own success. 
Like Washington liked having him around in this position as an aide de camp yeah. so much that um Hamilton was like, Okay, let's let's keep rising through the ranks. I wanna actually get out there and fight. And he really railed against his position for a while and then finally Washington was like, Okay, fine, fine, go get out there and fight. And he did actually. He really um uh, honored himself on the battlefield, particularly in Yorktown. Yeah. He he led his regiment into battle. Led it. Not like, I'm on horseback back here, but I'm leading you. Like, he was the first guy breaking through the lines and jumping on, like, into the trenches with the British and fighting them hand to hand. He was like a yeah, he, late he, teenager, he, right? Yeah. Well, he was about 20. Okay. So he definitely put his money where his mouth was. Like, he wasn't like... And yeah, I'm going to get out there and fight. And then when the time came, he was like, oh, I'm going to hang back here. Right. He got out there and fought. Yeah. I get the impression that he ran through more than one person. Yeah, and he was a little dude, too. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't uh, trying to think of some big tough guy, and I'm drawing a blank. Uh, The Rock. He wasn't The Rock. He was Kevin Hardish. Who's that? Uh, You know who Kevin Hart is. Oh, Kevin Hart-ish. I thought you were saying Kevin Hartish, like that's a person. <laughs> He's bigger than Kevin Hart, but yeah. Kevin Hart's like five four. Uh He's teeny. How big was Alexander Hamilton? He's five seven. Oh, well, he's way bigger. Well, those three inches matter when you're five okay, four. All right, all right. <laughs> but Washington, he was a giant. Oh, yeah, he was a big dude, wasn't he? Tall? Yeah. Uh so the war is over. That's the quickest description of the Revolutionary War ever. <laughs> Who won? <laughs> The U.S. won. Okay. Uh, or America, I guess. And um, it's interesting, too, that documentary pointed out at one point, they were like, I don't think anyone gave much thought to what literally they were going to do the day after the war. Mm-hmm. They were so, like, gung-ho for it. And then afterward, they're like, whoa, we're in bad shape. Right. Like, we're a bankrupt nation. Right. But even more than that, the the people who were running the show we're pretty content with the idea of like their state being in, an independent country now. Oh yeah, there were two schools of thought. Like Thomas Jefferson referred when uh when when he called when he said my country, he was talking about Virginia. Yeah. And he w- he was basically uh, of a similar mind to just about everyone else we would consider a, fo- a founding father. There weren't too many people who were thinking like Alexander Hamilton, no. whose idea was, "Hey, let's, let's all get together. There's going to be a lot more peace." A lot less infighting, and we're going to have a lot less headaches with things like multiple currencies and all that stuff. So let's just come together and create a centralized federal government. And all these guys are like, whoa, 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 are you nuts? A centralized federal government it sounds an awful lot like a monarchy, and we just threw those cats off. Yeah. Why would we want to go back to it? So Hamilton saw very clearly that a central, very powerful federal government that was in control in, in, in as an umbrella over the 13 colonies, turning them into states assembled under this federal government, was the best way to help this the, these colonies turn states and now turn country to mature, to keep going, to progress forward. But he had a real uphill battle to climb um, because there was nobody really who saw things that way. Yeah, and uh, he knew that the the only way to do this was to have a a document behind him, uh, pushing him along. And he did. Uh, he saw the U.S. Constitution as a great chance to do so. Right. And uh, we'll talk about that right after this. 
So, Chuck, um, a lot of people don't really recognize that the Revolutionary War ends in 1776, but it wasn't until 1787 that the Constitution is written, right? That's right. And in between that time, people were just kind of like, okay, uh, what do we do? There was the Articles of Confederation. Yeah, they were great. Well, they weren't so great, actually. I thought they were pretty great. Okay, well, the Founding Fathers <laughs> thought they stunk. And actually, well, Founding Father. they showed up in, uh, I think, Philadelphia and um, were called there to say, hey, uh, let's figure something out about this Articles of Confederation. It's the, the, the country is bankrupt. We're going nowhere. Um, everybody's hooked on drugs. We don't know what's going on. Everybody come and let's figure out how to make the Articles of Confederation better. And these founding fathers, um, all showed up, these delegates, including Alexander Hamilton, who was a delegate from New York. And they really looked at it and they were like, this is terrible. Let's just start over. So they crumple it up, threw it over their shoulder, pulled out a fresh piece of paper and said, okay, debate. That's right. Uh, and through that debate, the Constitution of the United States was drafted. Uh, Hamilton actually was not there a lot uh, for the debates because of business. And um, so he wasn't actually a key member in drafting the Constitution. Uh, what he was, um, and of course the Constitution was the document that that indicated a strong central government and a powerful president. Uh, he came into, into play when it came time for for saying this is the document we're going to go forward with. Yeah, for getting it ratified. Um, they needed nine of 13 states uh, for it to pass, and there was a lot of strong opposition, like you were saying. You know, we were we just got out from under Britain's rule. Why are right. we going to draft this thing with, like, these taxes and this central government, and we like all of our little small states making all their own decisions? Mm-hmm. And um, it, it turned out to be a big deal when he and... Uh, John Jay and James Madison wrote the Federalist Papers. Right. Forming the Federalist Party and really coming out hard. Like, have you ever read, like, even the first Federalist Paper? Uh, no. It's amazing. And Hamilton wrote that, the introduction. Mm -hmm. And in it, he basically just says, here are all your questions answered, and here's why you are all wrong. Right. And here's why this is the way forward, no questions asked. Right. And I know in it, like, he, he basically, he and Jay and Madison used it as an opportunity to address every single um, opposition to the Constitution and the yep. adoption of it, including things like, um, well, you know, we have a court to interpret the law so that it's constantly evolving and that kind of thing. Um, and just explaining why we needed a powerful executive, but that it would be um, balanced out by these other branches of government as well. Um and it worked. These things were getting published in the papers, and, and it, it helped to really change the minds of a lot of people. Yeah, and uh, remarkably, the Federalist Papers have been cited by the Supreme Court of the United States more than any other document, yeah, including the Constitution. It's pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, it really is, because, I mean, if you think about it, it's just these guys are saying, Here are, here's our opinion of the Constitution uh, and why it works. Yeah. And the Supreme Court says, we're with you, buddy. That's right. Uh, so he got married along the way in 1780 to uh, a woman named Elizabeth uh, Schuyler. Schuyler. Schuyler? Yeah. All right. And um, a, a big thing happened in 1788. They had the first presidential election. Washington won. And as his confidant, he uh, appointed quickly uh, Hamilton as his secretary of treasury. Uh, 
probably the most powerful cabinet position of all. Yeah, and like we said, the, the, we were nearly bankrupt from the Revolutionary War. We borrowed money from everyone from, like, they owed money to the army. They owed money to individuals who supported the army. They would just go take equipment and money and say, here, we're going to pay you back one day. Mm-hmm. And they literally owed money to American citizens to the point where they couldn't pay it back. And it was a disorganized mess of records. Mm-hmm. And Hamilton got in there, and most people would have shied away. And he was like, this is great. I can really get in here right. and do what I do best, which is get this on the right track. Yeah, he was a, he was a big picture guy, if there was ever a big picture guy. And um, historians now look back at Hamilton and say he – they actually say the man who made America. That's one of his, his – um, nicknames yeah right which is that's not for nothing saying something like that yeah um he had a vision to where um, the strong central government could create the um the nation that these states comprised or composed um and it was based on four points right one was tariffs which we talked about in the customs episode yes um one was a uh central bank and uh investment in infrastructure, and then a big one called Assumption, yeah. which was taking all the state's individual debts and um, the federal government assuming it. And yeah. that was a big – he had a lot of trouble with that one because a lot of people were like, why would you want to do that? Oh, we understand why you want to make the central government that much more powerful because we'll owe you now, yeah. right? He said it's way more than that. Um not only will yes, you guys will owe us, but it, you know it's a it's a gesture of goodwill. But it legitimizes this federal government, and it also allows it once the, there's an establishment of a national debt to borrow more money. Yeah, and to um, For issue cheaper though, right? And to issue bonds against those debts, which can be traded on the open market. And everybody's like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, what? Yeah, and he's like, just just trust me. And um, he was faced with that a lot, like where he, he understood the steps forward, and. He was, he faced opposition at just about every turn. And I, I get the impression that a lot of it was like from people who weren't getting what he was getting across because. Well, they were radical ideas. Very, like, like some of them a century ahead of their time. Oh yeah. Like here, there was a panic, uh, in 1792, a financial panic where somebody tried to, to corner the market on treasury bonds and almost collapsed the federal debt, right? Just, just almost ruined it single-handedly. And uh, under the guidance of Alexander Hamilton, the national bank that he had established stepped in and became a, what's called a buyer of last resort, yeah. where they were buying treasury bills at less than what they were worth so that you had to be really desperate to go and sell them to them. Um, and that, that wasn't, I guess, legitimized by economists until like a full century after that. Yeah. This guy was just operating on like a totally different level, like very much ahead of his time. Well, the idea of creating a national, purposefully creating a national debt seemed crazy. Right. And no one understood it. And he <clears throat> came out with quotes like, the national debt will be the cement of our nation. And basically, like these creditors are going to have to get on board and support the federal government right. so they can get paid back. Exactly. And it really had a unifying effect. Um he had a he had a problem getting assumption uh, passed through. It was blocked on almost every level with mm-hmm. the, with politicians, and um, one of his neighbors in New York at the time was uh, one Thomas Jefferson, one of his biggest uh, foes throughout his career. Oh yeah, 
And uh, he worked out a little deal at a very famous dinner called the Dinner Table Compromise, wherein uh, Jefferson wanted to move the capital to essentially what would become Washington, D.C. Yeah, to Virginia. And um, Hamilton was like, no, I'd like it here in New York City. He said, but here's what we'll do. Um, you can move your capital down there if you throw your support. Uh, and Madison was there, too, if you guys throw your support behind Assumption. Uh, and they said, great, uh, that's what we'll do. So he sacrificed New York City as the capital, his own people. Yeah. Because he was like a, a true New Yorker through and through by this time. But he was a transplant. A transplant New and Yorker. And historians point to that as saying like he, he sure. didn't have the kind of ties that like native-born New Yorkers had to it necessarily. But that's why the capital ended up in D.C. Yeah. And uh, that's why Assumption went through and it changed history. And we also talked in the customs episode about how tariffs paid for the um, United States, <clears throat> like these high taxes on imports, especially imported British goods. Yeah. Um, but that money didn't just automatically funnel into the infrastructure that built the United States Industrial Revolution. That was directed by the policies of Alexander Hamilton. Well, yeah, because Jefferson was like, we want to be farmers. Yeah. Like, I want to be an agricultural society. Small government. Yeah. And he said, no, where it's at is big government and a big industrialized nation. Right. That's how we're going to get ahead. And you can actually trace the two um, political parties in the United States, or actually the the fact that we have political parties, back to the rivalry between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and how they saw things. Um, small government, uh, agrarian-based, and big government and infrastructure based industrial based yeah it was it was the new party was the republicans and then the federalists um nothing to do with republicans of modern times right totally. although there is like a that whole small government bent that's kind of a big deal with republicans so uh we have these two parties things got really ugly uh they weren't afraid to i mean they weren't nice guys with each other they weren't afraid to to argue and yell and scream right. uh, about the, I mean, this is the direction of the country right. at a very uh, tentative time. You know, we could have gone one of two ways. So it was it was a big deal. Yeah. It wasn't just a matter of passing a couple of laws. It was like, what kind of country do we want to be? Yeah. And Hamilton kind of won. He definitely won. Uh, he left public office as uh, 1795 when he resigned as Treasury Secretary, but he was far from leaving politics. He's right. still very heavily involved. Oh, yeah. He kept his uh, his thumb on the Federalist Party as, as much as he could. And um, he actually ended up basically screwing up the party's chances of the presidency from that point on when he became involved in, I think, the 1800 election, right? Yeah, he kind of destroyed his own party. Uh-huh. So John Adams was the country's second president, and Adams was a Federalist, but he and Hamilton didn't really get along. They didn't see things eye to eye. They couldn't stand each other. And um, they were both members of Washington's cabinet. Yeah. Uh, and Adams was very much uh, the older than um, Alexander Hamilton, and he kind of got pushed to the side whenever there was um, a in their rivalry. Is whenever Washington was around because he kind of favored Hamilton more than Adams, right? Yeah, I'm picturing Paul Giamatti shoving around Lin-Manuel Miranda. Right, okay. <laughs> you know? Right. One of those guys is cooler than the other. Who? It's Paul Giamatti. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. 
I don't know. Paul Giamatti's kind of a cool cat. No, he's, uh, in fact, I knew someone who worked on a movie with him locally, and uh, our buddy Craig. Uh-huh. And he was like, he went out with us a few times, like, drinking, and he was like the coolest guy. That's neat. Yeah. So that's I'd say what I, that's, I expect that from him. They're in a tie for cool dudes. Okay. So, um, Paul Giamatti's like, I don't like you, Lin-Manuel, and Lin-Manuel's like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Suck an egg. And, um, on Broadway, you just had an HBO show. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, um, when Adams comes to power, he very much freezes, um, Hamilton out of the, the Federalist Party. Well, yeah, and he, he said some really nasty things. <clears throat> he questioned his integrity. He called him a, a, a bastard, uh, a bastard Creole immigrant. Jeez. Like, he was not nice. Okay, so, um, Hamilton doesn't like this. He starts writing about uh, Adams and just what a terrible person he thinks Adams is. Yeah, he went after him hard. But he didn't go after him publicly. It was actually Aaron Burr, who, from what I understand, is a pretty big scoundrel. He He's got a his, jerk. He got his hands on these private papers, I think private correspondence, and published them just in time for the 1800 election. And... In the 1800 election, there uh, John Adams was up for re-election for a second term, uh, and then Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr were running against him, both as Republicans, right? And with the publication of these, this basically slander against John Adams at the hands of Alexander Hamilton, it created enough infighting in the Federalist Party that they they were out of the race, and it was down to the two Republicans. They actually tied, and Congress. Um, Congress decided who would win, if I remember correctly, right? Yeah, I think it went to the House, and there was a tie there. Then it went to Congress, and uh, or the Senate. Say what? The Senate it went to the House, and then the Senate. Yes, I believe that's correct. Okay, so um, they they ultimately voted for Jefferson, and at the time, if you were the runner-up in a presidential election, you became vice president. So Aaron Burr became vice president. But it w- it just tore Hamilton apart that he had to figure out who to support in this. He didn't like either one of them, but um, Burr was just a jerk. He was an aristocratic rich kid mm-hmm. who uh, clearly was getting into politics to become more famous, to make more money. Uh, he was he w- was impure of heart and intention. Right. And despite uh, how Hamilton felt about Jefferson. I mean, like, this he, is his mortal enemy, basically. Yeah, well, one of them. He had a bunch. Yeah. But uh, despite how he felt about him, he was like, at least Jefferson, I think, isn't a jerk and wants, like, good things for America. And I can't even say that about Burr. Right, right. So, like, if uh, Alexander Hamilton was a great statesman, terrible politician, Alex- or Aaron Burr was a pretty good politician, terrible statesman. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he threw his support behind Thomas Jefferson uh, and... Against Aaron Burr, so much so that apparently he uh, made a remark at a dinner party about Aaron Burr's character that got back to Aaron Burr. Yeah. And it was uh, vicious enough that he challenged him to a duel. And we'll talk about that right after this. We did a good episode on duels yeah. many years ago, mm-hmm. uh, and we covered this duel, uh, but we would be remiss not to go over it again. Um, 
Hamilton had been challenged to a lot of duels over the years, which is no surprise because <laughs> he was not afraid to mix it up. Uh-huh. Uh, but at the time, duels were like, uh, they didn't often go down. Like you, you could almost always talk your way out of a duel by doing a certain certain amount of apologizing without fully like uh, destroying your reputation as mm-hmm. like someone who stood behind his word. Mm-hmm. And in this case, he uh, Hamilton very much tried to get out of this duel. Uh, went so far as to almost offer a full retraction, which is a, a miracle for Hamilton. Yeah. But a Burr was having none of it. He like really wanted this to go down. Yeah. And it went down. It did. Um, it was at Weehawken, New Jersey, which is like along the shores of the Hudson. And um, t- three years earlier, uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton's firstborn son, Philip, who the family had put basically all of their hopes and dreams into, yeah. was killed in a duel himself there. Yeah, sticking the up for place. his dad. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy who was slandering his dad publicly, and Philip demanded a, a retraction, and the guy said no. Threw down the gauntlet. So, yeah, Philip challenged him to a duel, and they met at Weehawken, and Philip was killed uh, at that duel. And three years later, at the same spot when Alexander Hamilton met Aaron Burr, uh, historians think this was on his mind, and that he actually um, purposefully missed Aaron Burr because he saw what can happen in a duel. But yeah. Aaron Burr was like, Thanks for the free ride, chump, and shot him in the stomach. Yeah, there are very, nobody knows for sure what happened. There are conflicting accounts, um, whether or not he purposely missed, whether he didn't shoot at all and got uh, fired upon and then accidentally fired his weapon. Mm. Um, no one actually saw it go down. They do know there were two shots mm-hmm. uh, fired, though, because of the noise. And, um, yeah, he got a, a bullet through the liver and, and through his abdomen and immediately said to his uh, confidant who rushed up to him, he's like, this is it. He got me. Yeah, this is a mortal wound. And some people even say that he was goading Burr into killing him uh, that day with the way he handled the duel. And like he was taking his time, putting on his glasses. He had a special gun that had a hair trigger, which would make it easier to aim. Uh, There's all these weird conflicting accounts. Um it's kind of frustrating that no one knows like the actual truth. I think it is frustrating. I that's very odd that he would have um, wanted to die at this point. It doesn't seem like his life was well, in that place. I don't think he thought he was going to die. I think he thought he could destroy Burr's reputation by being a gentleman and firing into the air, mm. and then Burr actually shooting him. He lives. And is a bit of a martyr. I got gotcha. you. Well, a living martyr. That didn't happen. No, he died. No, and before he died, his his reputation had gone down quite a bit thanks to an extramarital affair that he had, um, starting in I think 1791, while he was still the Secretary of the Treasury. Right. So uh, he met a woman uh, named Maria Reynolds who showed up on his doorstep in, in Philadelphia. And said, hey, I am in great trouble. My husband left me with this kid. Yeah. I'm from New York. I know you're from New York. <laughs> you can, can I have some money? Yeah. And, uh, it just kind of went from there, right? So they yeah. ended up having a, I think a three year long affair. Well, he gave her some money and she said, how can I ever repay you? And he went, well, I have one idea. <laughs> and she said, okay. Right. And that kind of became the arrangement. Yep. So, um, again, this went on for three years and it turned out that, um, Mrs. Reynolds' husband was a uh, 
a criminal himself and that this was all an extortion attempt. Yeah. Right? Um, he hadn't left her at all. They had plotted together and, um, they were extorting money from, uh, from Alexander Hamilton. When Mr. Reynolds, James Reynolds was caught in another scandal, um, he said, Hey, get this. You guys should take it easy on me because I got some great information you're going to love. You know, the secretary of the treasury. Well, me and my wife have been extorting him. I, what I can only assume is federal money for years now. Go, go talk to him. And they did. That's right. And Hamilton, uh, he had one thing he couldn't stand for is for his integrity to be questioned. And, uh, in this case, not integrity as being a, a faithful husband, <laughs> but integrity in stealing from the government. Right. And he's like, I won't stand for that. I'm going to come out and say, you know, I was having an affair and I was making payments and they were for my personal funds. Here's the letters to prove it. Yeah. Which was pretty remarkable. It he was. destroyed his political career in the process, but he was like, no one's going to accuse me of pilfering money from the country that I love. Yeah, and originally the, he was approached by a delegation um, of investigators, I think including James Madison, who said, or no, James Monroe, I'm sorry, who said, hey man, we're, you're being accused of using government funds as hush money. Um, you want to you wanna speak to this? And he produced the love letters that exonerated him yeah. privately. And Monroe and the other investigators agreed to just keep the matter private because they saw that that was a false accusation, that he'd been using his own money to um, to cover the extortion. Yeah. And uh, But he let them walk with the love letters, provided they kept them confidential. Well, one of them gave them to Thomas Jefferson, and Jefferson was like, oh, baby. Yeah. What? Thank you, God, for dropping this in my lap. I hate this guy. He's my political rival. I'm going to see to it that these things are published. And so they got published. And as a result of them being published, that's when Hamilton was like, well, I'll publish my own explanation. And he did. Yeah. And he went, he went large with it and yeah. went wide and everyone knew. But like I said, at least he was proven out to not be ripping off his government. Right. So everybody was like, good for that. But at the same time, uh, you just confessed to an affair in a, in a publication that you published yourself. So that's the part we're going to remember. So his star definitely waned as a result of that. He wasn't, um, as, as, uh, important in the Federalist Party. He, he didn't hold, uh, any, um, civil office any longer. Um, and by the time he was killed in the duel. Yeah, 49 years old. Yeah, and his finances had been pretty stretched. He built a place called the Grange on 35 acres in what is now Harlem. Uh, and it almost bankrupted his family, apparently. Yeah, and he, um, like you said, he had stretched himself too thin. He was out of the public eye for the most part. And once he died and was not around to vigorously defend himself, right? Uh, people like Adams and Jefferson and Madison jumped on him uh, and started writing these things about, you know, he wanted a monarchy. He wasn't a good guy. He didn't have the, the best interest of the country, which was really a shame. And for many years, I think that had a big impact on how he was viewed in America. Sure. Like, you know, he doesn't have a statue in Washington, D.C. No. Nope. Yet. Um, he doesn't have a memorial in Washington, D.C. Yet. <laughs> Are they trying to get one? I'm sure Lin-Manuel Miranda's like, come on. <laughs> well, the one guy, that uh, one historian... It's really great at the end. He was like, America is his memorial. Like you're living, oh, yeah. you're living in his memorial. That was a great line. Pretty powerful. Yeah. So now 
scholars have gotten on board and they said, you know what, this guy was actually perhaps the most influential person in our history mm-hmm. to the America that we look around at today. Yeah. The Coast Guard. Lighthouses. Lighthouses. <laughs> That's it. Uh, the, uh, well, just the whole the structure of our economy, the fact that we have yeah. a, a central bank, um, the fact that the government intervenes in financial crises. Yeah. He's credited with coming up with the stock market after that panic of 1792. He got uh, the biggest traders around to meet him in New York and say, hey, let's all sign a, a letter of cooperation. Yeah. And that became the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, and he's buried steps from the New York Stock Exchange. Yep. Uh, he founded the Bank of New York. That was one of three banks that he founded, two national banks and the Bank of New York. And the Bank of New York actually was still in continuous operation until I think 2008 or 2011 when a chemical bank or Citigroup took it over. But it, it had been like operating continuously since I think 1790, 1784, right? Yeah. He founded the New York Post. Newspaper? Yeah. I had a, what was the original name? The New York Evening Post. Yeah, which became the Post. Right. And he founded that so he could get his word out. Yeah. It was a Federalist newspaper originally. Yep. Uh, pretty, pretty amazing guy. He did quite a bit. And yeah, he is starting to get his, his due recognition. Yeah. And he, uh, you mentioned the Grange. Um, that was the only home he ever owned in New York. He lived downtown for most of his life in apartments, but finally bought that land. Uh, in the, the suburb of Harlem. And um, in 1889, uh, that home was donated to a New York church uh, if they moved it 250 feet, which they did. And then in the 1960s, it fell into uh, uh, disrepair, basically. And they said, you know, now it's part of the National Park Service. We need to honor this house. Let's find a location for it and restore it. And it took about 30 years. And then finally, uh, in 2011, September, uh, $14.5 million later, uh, reopened to the public uh, near St. Nicholas Park. Pretty amazing. Yep. And he's buried right there behind Trinity Church, around the corner from the Stock Exchange. Yeah. Lasting legacy. He's yeah. on Broadway. <laughs> Immigrant bastard child. Amazing. Pretty amazing stuff. No wonder he got a musical written about him. At first, when that first came out, I didn't know a lot about him. I was like, why is somebody writing a musical about him? Yeah. And then you read up on it, and you're like, oh, that's exactly why. True, true underdog. Yeah, he was. He was great. I like him. <laughs> uh, if you want to know more about Alexander Hamilton, go to Broadway. Uh, and you can also type those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since I said Broadway, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this rare shout-out. Uh, hey, guys, I know this isn't your usual M.O., but I was hoping you'd be able to publicly thank my friend Jeff Beveridge. This guy's name. It's a great name. <laughs> he's my best friend for 15 years and has been like a brother to me. Uh, he's the one that got me hooked on your show. Uh, recently, he has stepped up even more after my family suffered a pretty devastating house fire. Uh, we had lots of family and friends reaching out to support us. But he offered to take in my pet turtle and tortoise that we didn't have room for in our rental house. Uh, it's hard to fathom just how we will be able to repay and thank him for, uh, thank all of our family and friends. I know the best way to thank Bev, that's what they call him, uh, would be a shout out from you guys. Even better, if you would call him a schmup, which is a combination of a schmuck and a chump. Well, I don't know if we should do that. Well, I mean, 
it sounds like it would make Bev's day, so... Oh, well, okay. I, for one, will say, Bev, sir, you are a first-rate schmump. Schmump. <laughs> what if we just made him cry? I doubt it. I uh, hope you had a great UK tour. We did. And we look forward to hearing some of the tangents from the travels. You might. Thanks for all the hours of entertainment. And that is from Kevin Barrett. Nice. Well, there you go. Kevin, your wish has been fulfilled. Uh, You're a schmump too, Kevin. <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for that. Thank you, Bev, for being a top-notch person. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can hang out with us on Twitter at SYSK Podcast. You can hang out with me, too, at Josh underscore um underscore Clark. You can hang out with us on Facebook. Uh, Chuck has his own, Charles W. Chuck Bryant, right? That's right, sir. I've got one called Super Josh Clark. Check it out. Yeah, good stuff going on in those places. Yeah, and then, of course, you can hang out at the official Stuff You Should Know page at facebook.com slash stuff you should know. Uh, we're on Instagram. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, you can join us at our humble abode on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 